Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Mike Fredantoni, Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Research and Industry Technology at the Mortgage Bankers Association. To talk about the MBA's forecast on mortgage rates, inflation, home prices, origination volume, and more. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Christina Bennett, Senior Vice President of UWM Sales, about a career in the wholesale channel. Christina, is there a particular career path or skill set you commonly see with those looking to become independent mortgage brokers? Hi, Sarah. Honestly, typically what we're seeing is retail loan officers moving over from wholesale, but really anyone can come over into the wholesale channel. You don't have to have a lot of experience. There's a lot of support for anyone coming over. We're seeing a lot of college grads, military veterans, also retired government workers. Honestly, it's just a great place for many people to be. Thanks, Christina. And listeners, you can go to BeAMortgageBroker.com to get more information. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Okay, so we're here at MBA Secondary um, in New York City. Been a great conference so far. And I really wanted to talk about some of the forecast things that you gave a presentation on. So let's dive right in and um, let's talk about inflation or disinflation. Yeah, so... Coming out of the pandemic, any number of supply chain constraints led to inflation really getting ahead of way where the Fed would want it to be. The longer we stayed there, it got baked into a lot of other pricing decisions, and we saw the headline inflation rate get to 9%. And that's just terrifying if you're a central banker. That is contrary to anything they're trying to do. They uh, increased short-term rates five percentage points over a short period of time in an effort to try to slow that down. It's been successful so far, but I would say not as successful as they would like. So depending on which measure you look at, we're at five, a little below five. It's a lot better than nine, but it's not the 2% where they like to be. So our expectation is they're going to keep plugging away to try to keep that inflation rate coming down. Do you do you have a, a target in mind like, you know, or have they been clear about a target in mind that they're looking for, you know, they're going to do three more rates, this kind of thing, kind of the outline they gave us last year, or have they been less clear this year? Definitely less clear. And uh, we actually think they may be done increasing rates. But what I'm speaking to is right now, there's a lot of anticipation in the market that they're ready to cut rates because you know the uncertainty in the banking system, uh, the sense that the economy is slowing down. But I think what a lot of Federal Reserve officials have made pretty clear, they are in no hurry to cut rates with inflation as high as it is. So our forecast has them staying at the current level all the way through 23. So I wouldn't expect a first cut until the first quarter of 2024. So we know there are other market influences. It's not just what the Fed does. I know your original uh, forecast had you know rates going down quite a bit by the end of the year. What does that look like now? Yeah. For a 30-year mortgage rate, let's call it 6.5% today. You know, we tend to be in this relatively narrow range between 6, 6.5, depending upon what's happening that particular week. Our expectation is once the Fed really has sounded the all clear that they're at the top for this rate cycle, you could see uh, some of the rate volatility that has been pushing up mortgage rates subside a little bit. So our forecast is for a 30-year mortgage rate to be closer to five and a half by the end of this year and drop it a little lower next year. 
from your mouth to God's ears. Okay, can <laughs> we, we just be say helpful, that? Yeah. Because that would be amazing. Um, let's talk about some of those other factors. You mentioned the banking crisis. How do you think that's factoring in? Yeah, well, it has been a very unsettling couple of months, as you know, that these seem to come out of the blue. Uh, three of the largest bank failures in the history of the United States. And a lot of it was directly, you can point to the shock from the Fed raising short-term rates so quickly to such an extent. And across the banking system, there's about $600 billion of unrealized losses in the securities books that banks hold. It's about a trillion dollars of unrealized losses on the loan book. And what we saw in those three banks' cases, that makes depositors nervous when there's this realization that there's that level of loss in the system. And you've seen sort of one bank to another really get under the microscope as investors saying sort of, are you solid? Can I have confidence that my deposits are going to be safe, particularly uninsured deposits, of course, right? So it really has changed the psychology of the market, I would think. And one thing that I pointed to in the presentation at the secondary conference was we were already seeing credit conditions tighten. Uh, so banks tightening credit criteria on consumer loans, commercial real estate, CNI loans, a little bit on residential mortgage, not, not as much because there's a secondary market outlet. And anytime historically where you see banks tighten like that, that's really followed by a slowdown in the economy. So we were already predicting a, a modest recession. We think it's going to be a little worse than we would have thought before the bank issues. Yeah, that's just not any good news, right? Um, it does point to the strength of the IMBs, I think, you know, something that Bob Brooksmith said um, in his uh, session yesterday is, you know, these are, these are not uh, mortgage banks that have had these you know, situations that have need to be uh, bailed out that have seen failure. And, you know, he's pointing to the fact that, you know, those should be supported right now. Yeah. Looking at data from Humda, independent mortgage banks are about two thirds of origination. Looking at our data, they're more than half of servicing at this point. So that they're a very, very important part of the market. Obviously, all the banks are our members too. And we don't have favorites amongst our, our membership, but uh, all of them incredibly important. But to Bob's point, uh, this, I think, is just highlighting the essential role that independent mortgage banks play in the market. So one of the things about this economy that's so strange is that we have had this very strong um, labor market, right? The jobs part of the economy is going great, which is very, um, it, it throws a wrench into what the Fed is trying to do. At the same time, like, it's not like anybody wants to see a bunch of people yeah. unemployed. So tell us where, what you've seen on job growth and how that's factoring in. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, one thing I would encourage people to remember that the job market tends to be a lagging indicator, particularly the unemployment rate. And think about it in our own industry, right? That first the volume drops, then uh, decision makers uh, you know, make, make the move to reduce capacity, right? They, they don't typically do it in advance. And that happens in every sector. But just looking at some of the numbers, right? We still have almost 10 million job openings. So a lot of business demand for workers. The unemployment rate at 3.4% in April, that's the lowest we've seen since 1969. We're averaging 280,000 uh, in terms of job gains per month thus far this year. So very, very strong. Now, some of the signs of a little bit of slowing, uh, initial claims for unemployment insurance are trending up. Uh, the rate of wage growth is slowing. It was 5.5% last year. It's a little less than 45 now. And so that's positive if you're a central banker, because if wages are growing uh, at that 5.5% rate, 
the company really has to take a choice. Are, are they going to just sort of eat those costs and, and take lower profit? Or are they going to push that wage cost forward in the form of higher prices to their customer? And we were seeing that wage price spiral happening. So the fact that the rate of wage growth is slowing, again, not as fast as the Fed would like, is a positive uh, in terms of the central bank review of we want a, an economy with maximum employment, but stable prices. It's a tough balancing act, but that's what they're aiming for. It is such a tough balancing act. And, you know, it. it uh, when we talk about rates are higher, obviously five points higher than, than at the low. Um, and that was, you know, um, say the high we saw in the fall um, of 2022. That what what has been interesting is it has not brought down home prices like people thought. So tell us a little bit about your forecast for home prices and if you've adjusted that as we go. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember back in October, we put out this forecast saying, you know, we think the best way to characterize the national housing market the next two years is home prices essentially flat. And that's after a year where home prices at the national level went up almost 19%, right? So that is a huge difference. And also note that at 19% national growth, every market in the country was growing. When home prices are flat, you're seeing a lot of markets with some pretty significant declines. Right now, the San Francisco Bay Area is one that jumps out, but a lot of West Coast markets, some mountain state markets as well. But the rest of the country looks, looks pretty strong. So to your point, how is that happening when rates moved as fast as they did? And it gets to a challenge we've had going back to the great financial crisis of we're just not building enough housing in this country. If you look from the 70s until that first decade of the 2000s, each decade we were building between 16 and 18 million housing units. In the, in the 20 teens, we built 11 million. At a time when the millennials are reaching the age where they go out and form their own households. Uh, and, you know, absolutely the home building sector really suffered through the great financial crisis and the aftermath. But we're now, we're in this hole of just sort of a structural undersupply. And, you know, our thought again last October was that's going to keep home prices from falling because there's always going to be some demand and that's going to be enough to soak up the supply that's there. And builders had pulled back at least initially too, so there wasn't a lot of new homes. They are now picking up the pace, which is a good thing. But I would say, you know, the next, you know, five, seven years, we're going to be in this structural undersupply situation. So as the economy recovers, as the housing market recovers, maybe if rates come down a bit, we're going to be bumping up against that lack of supply more and more. But for now, it's a positive in the sense of it's keeping home prices from dropping. That's true. I mean, I do think uh, also as you see mortgage rates come down a little bit, moderating, um, we would hope that that would help people sell, right? Be confident enough that they can list their house and not be, you know, priced out, um, whether by mortgage rates or the combination of that plus what ho home prices are doing. Um, but I mean, that has to happen. And then there has to be some some length of time for people to really change their mindset, right? The consumers aren't like us. They don't watch this every single day, every single minute. We know when things turn, they, you know, they might still be thinking it's, you know, six months ago right, when, they're, right. when their neighbor did had how many people at an open house or something. I mean, it's just really hard to kind of measure and also influence the consumer mindset here when they're not paying that much attention. That's right. And I, I think, you know, one thing I talked about yesterday was this idea of a lock-in effect that, you know, someone who uh, is a homeowner 
got a 3% rate. And I think from an industry perspective, the thought is that person will never move again because they're going to hold on to that for dear life. And I think that says something about mortgage people, like it's all about the mortgage. But, um, you know, what I try to highlight is, you know, life happens to a lot of people who aren't mortgage people and they get married, they have kids, they get new jobs, other reasons that make you move, even if it may not be the best financial decision, they are going to move. And I think the the more distance we get away from those 3% rates, so I think the farther we get away from those 3% mortgage rates, the easier it's going to be for some people to sort of leave that 3% rate behind because of these life events that really are the reason why many people are moving. I, I think that's so true. The psychology behind it, it's like when you saw it when you saw it go so low, it's not that five, you know, in the fives or even in the sixes is that high, but it's so high compared to like, Hey, I just got this rate or my neighbor just got this That's rate right. or I missed out on this great rate. Right. I think it's the psychology behind it. So agree with you there, the farther we get away from that. And then um, I know in your presentation, you talked about what you had seen on people are sort of um, solving for this whole issue by moving, if they are moving to places that are just less expensive. So yeah, they might have, you know, a higher priced home relative to, uh, you know, home prices have gone up in that area and they have a higher mortgage rate. But if they're moving from a higher priced area to a lower price, they're, they're coming out ahead in the end. Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, give credit to some colleagues at Freddie Mac who put up some really neat research on migration. And it was showing that if you look at within county moves, they're down. And that makes sense, right? Within county, that's essentially a discretionary move. It's, it's something that's just a little bit nicer, a little bit different. Those aren't happening as frequently. But moving across county, across state, across the country, that's a job move. That's a family move. That There's another reason that's driving that. But to your point, the other thing you totally see is net migration out of the top, top 25 metros, uh, net in-migration to less costly areas. And yeah, lots of research around this that... You know, initially it's like, okay, is that all about the pandemic and hybrid work? Uh, or now is some of it truly being driven by differential housing costs, right? And that's a factor in where people decide to live. Absolutely. I also think that, you know, um, in the pandemic, people realized like other people are choosing, you know, it's that whole FOMO thing or like, wow, look at this giant house they got in, you know, Oklahoma yeah. or Kansas or the Midwest or somewhere. And I, I feel like it just got a lot more exposure. And maybe some of those people went back, but I do think it opened up the possibility where people are like, you know, that that is an option now, or maybe they didn't think of it as a serious option before, especially if they can work remote. Yeah. And I think more flexibility really across the entire workforce in you know, obviously, there's implications for that in terms of the commercial real estate market. But I think from a household perspective, it's it's positive. You know, options have value and they're, they're exercising that. I think the other sort of aspect of the pandemic, and this was pretty clear from the get-go, right? This was a positive housing demand shock. People realized that the house is not just where they're sleeping. It's where they're working. It's where they're teaching their kids. It's where they're stuck for long periods right. of time, potentially. <laughs> and so a move to a larger house, a different house, a different configuration. Um, that has a lot of value for people, I think. I think so too. It's so funny. I was talking to um, one of the attendees yesterday at lunch and we had just gotten out of your session. We were talking about this, you know, moving to places. He said, you know, um, you, you, there is the overriding narrative narrative that we see that people are very rate sensitive. At the same time, he's like, my parents literally just went from a low cost area to Seattle. So they, wow. he said they broke all the rules. They went to a higher cost area. They bought a bigger house that was more, you know, like um, 
less affordable. He's like, what is going on here? And I think it was funny because of course he's in the business and these are what his parents were doing. But I do think that it just goes to show like there are people every year who buy homes, no matter what the interest rate is. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. That being said, maybe the the next part of our, our conversation is less optimistic. And that's when we're talking about volume which obviously our listeners already are feeling very um, acutely, but uh, tell us what your forecast is now for, for the, this year in volume. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with home sales. And I, I did make the differentiation between the new and the existing market. We were talking about lock-in. We think existing home sales are going to be down 17 to 18% this year. So pretty significant drop. And that's really constrained by the amount of inventory that's on the market. Latest realtor data, less than three months of supply, you get about a million homes nationwide that are listed. That, that's really, really low. We would expect about six months of supply in a more balanced market. New home side, as I said, builders, I think, have been happily surprised at how uh, they've been able to sell their pipeline of uh, homes that were under construction at the end of last year. And there was concern earlier this year that they would run into troubles and would have to provide a lot of incentives to move those properties. When I talk to builders, that's that's just not the case. They're able to, to just sell those properties because there's nothing else for the buyers to get. So we essentially think new home sales are going to be flat to last year. But all in, you know, this is a tough market. So uh, last year, our estimate was about $2.2 trillion in origination volume. We see that fall into $1.8, so about a 20% drop. And that's declines both on the purchase and the refi side. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we, we all know it, right? We know that, but it's it's just, they're pretty stark numbers. What about uh, servicing income? What, what are we seeing there? So it's been, uh, in terms of profitability, it's been sort of the the, the real benefit for lenders that uh, for those that have a servicing portfolio, given that servicing values are really quite strong, um, you know, they've been able to reflect that in their all-in income. And so a number I highlighted yesterday was that, you know, while our data in terms of production income losses for this past year or so, that's really been fairly bleak. But you look all in, first quarter of this year, 32% of lenders were, were profitable when you include servicing income. So that's a, a big loss on the production side, but then a, a nice offsetting gain on the servicing side. I think the challenge in the year ahead is if we're right and the job market is likely to weaken from here, typically when the unemployment rate increases, Delinquencies do as well. Higher delinquencies mean higher servicing costs, and that erodes some of that profitability of the servicing business. No, that's a great point. And I mean, that is the downside. So we know that the um, the Fed wants to see more job losses before maybe they pivot. That's what we've been talking about. But if you're in the mortgage industry, you really don't want people to lose their jobs and have to you know, go into foreclosure or do loss mit for that, even though I feel like um, now everybody's skills are really sharp on that. <laughs> is, you know, and, and so I think we'd be prepared. We obviously don't see a huge um, crash or a huge increase in foreclosures anyway. No, no. And then, as you said, I think the industry and the policy community have developed an increasingly large set of tools to help borrowers who are in distress. And so borrowers will get, you know, every opportunity to try to stay in that property. If they have to leave, there's uh, sort of graceful ways of, of exiting from the property. And um, certainly at this point, you know, given how much home prices have increased, if they bought a few years ago, I think some of the servicer conversations will be along the lines of, look, if you sell now, you're going to walk away with equity. Right. Um, and, and that's probably going to be a better outcome for you than going through the end of a long process. 
I do think this is just, you know, um, maybe people who aren't familiar with housing so much but want to talk about like there's a crash coming. There's just no uh, correlation when you think about 2008 and you think about the fact that like, okay, you're going to you're selling your house into an environment where, you know, we have too much inventory where there's like two, you know, two houses on your block that are boarded up that have been vacant. I mean, it's completely different. It's like, if you put your house on the market today, you might have a line depending on where you are of 25 people. That's right. In. So it, it, even if there are foreclosures it, or even if there are people who get into trouble, it may not lead to a foreclosure much, right. much less than in the past. Yeah. And um, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about is we talked about, um, the volume, but there's also capacity, right? There's uh, productivity per originator, um, per employee at originators. Talk a little bit about what you found there. Yeah, a chart I showed yesterday was looking at loans closed per month per production employee. And going back the past decade or so, that's been about 1.8 on average. Uh, During a refi boom, a lot of more units going through that factory at a lender. Um, particularly in 20 and 21, um, that got as high as 3.1. So phenomenally productive during the pandemic. We're now at 1.0, which is the the lowest we've ever seen. And I know it's maddening to a a lot of lenders, right? Because they've had round after round of layoff and they've tried to cut expenses wherever they could, but volume dropped faster than they were able to adjust the capacity of their organization. So that's, I think, what those productivity numbers are reflecting. That's so rough. And, you know, you get to a point where it's like, at at what point can you still, can you not manufacture the loan, right? If you think of it as an assembly line, a real manufacturing line, you pull out key people and it, it just doesn't work the same. It's not, you know, maybe you don't have excess anymore. How do you get to the next level? Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's always so much talk around making the organization scalable. And often that's thought about on the upside of, you know, can I, if volume were to increase, do I have to hire or can I sort of push more through uh, given the resources I have, but it happens on the downside too. But what we're seeing now is, you know, volume has dropped so low that in some cases, you know, there, there, it's become a fixed cost as opposed to a variable cost in terms of certain positions that if you're going to stay as an independent business, you have to have people in those spots. You can't cut anymore because there's only one of them. For example, I've actually had these conversations with a number of lenders. And so then the conversation will go to, to M and A or, other uh, forms to try to get to a scale that that makes sense so that the expense base is going to be able to be maintained even at this level of volume. So, you know, when we think about um, the cost to originate, you know, we know that has just has kept going up, up and up. Is most of that because there's just less volume? So there, you know, the, the manufacturing process falls on less loans or is it really the process itself is that much more expensive? It's, it's both. I, um, uh, within the past year, it's, it's uh, largely reflecting just the decline in the denominator, the number of units. But over the course of the past decade, that cost has gone up. Sometimes you can sort of directly point to events where you know, a new implementation of TRID or uh, you know, QM or some of the other really important regulations that have impacted the industry. You can see costs jump uh, related to that. There have been other times where it's tougher to sort of nail down what continues to drive those costs up. But the, our cost measure, it's really comprehensive. It takes into account sales costs, so what the LO is getting. That tends to go up with the size of the loan. 
right? Because it's basis points on the uh, the size of, of the, the loan that's being originated. So when home prices go up, loan size goes up. And so the, the sales cost is increasing as well. But the other components, the back office, the corporate, uh, and the production support components, they're not as directly tied to that. So that's more just that this business is more complicated than it used to be. And a lot of that reflected in the compliance and regulatory requirements. That is, that's a great explanation because I do think, you know, it can, it can be from the outside, like, what is going on here? You know, I mean, we know that that denominator does make, you know, spread out of, of, among more loans. Oh, the cost to originate goes down, but that's a great explanation. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, MBS Outlook, right? I know you got that question yesterday during your session. Um, we're at the secondary conference. It's, it's on everybody's uh, uh, mind. So tell us, tell us about your outlook there. So, uh, you know, one thing that we really focused on in, in the presentation that we had another session today was, okay, we're not in a world where Fannie and Freddie are regular buyers in large scale of mortgage-backed securities anymore. The Fed's now allowing their portfolio to run off as well. And banks, particularly in the wake of Silicon Valley and Signature, um, they're going to be much less active, at least for a time. And so then you sort of left wondering, okay, well, who is going to be that next buyer? And the session we just had today was, you know, thinking more about, okay, our mortgage REITs going to play a larger role. And there's certainly a potential at these kind of times when spreads are as wide as they are. That's a sort of once in a lifetime opportunity for a lot of these REITs. And then other asset managers, you know, the, the, all the names, you know, on the, the, the big investment side, in many ways, they're just, they're in the market all the time now, passively investing in mortgage backed securities because it's such a big component of the overall bond market. So I don't know that we got answers, but it's, it's a fascinating conversation. And I would just say, you know, over this next period of time, you know, market dynamics uh, for MBS just are, are going to be different than what we had the last 10 years where you had the Fed in there as a constant buyer. That's just, that's just a, the nature of the market today. Mike, I appreciate you giving us all these insights and bringing us the data that you guys have. I would love to do this again at annual and see where we are six months from now. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm McKenna Clay, Events and Programs Specialist here at HW Media, and I wanted to invite you to our upcoming event this summer. A theme we've heard from housing leaders this year is the importance of relationships to not only survive, but be strategic in 2023. And that's why we decided to invite the top C-suite executives and leaders in mortgage to join us at Gathering of Eagles in Austin, Texas from June 18th until 21st. Now, Gathering of Eagles has historically been exclusive to the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, and C-suite leaders. But for the first time this year, we're opening up the audience to include execs from mortgage, title, and insurance so that you can connect and build vital partnerships for your business. If you want to learn more, visit the events page on realtrends.com and you can get registered today to come hang out with us in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.